Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. On Tuesday, July 9th, 2019, Exo Roast Company hosted a launch party for Tucson and Kimmy Eisel's debut novel, The Lightest Object in the Universe, from Algonquin Press. The event was a celebration with a reading by the author and music by Kohunto Nepal. Prior to the reading, the packed crowd bought all available copies offered by Antigone Books while the band played corridos. The lightest object in the universe is set in a not-too-distant post-apocalyptic future in which the banks have failed and there is no electric grid or any of the modern infrastructure that we rely upon each day. And yet, the book is a love story and full of hope. Today on 30 Minutes, you'll hear author Kimmy Isel read passages from the book. Up first, poet Frankie Rollins provides an introduction. Sometimes when I'm out with Kimmy Isel, I call her the mayor because we are greeted by so many people who love her. See this, Exhibit A. <laughs> The first time I ever saw Kimmy Eisel, she was with a group of two other people who were performing dances with their bikes. I was new to town, and it was one of those moments when I shook my head and widened my eyes and fell a little more in love with Tucson. It was so weird. But Kimmy was dancing earnestly. Her wheel and chain began to spin up a feeling and the pedals became hands and her bike dipped and rose and spoke just like any old dancer might. This is how Kimmy sees the world for its tremendous possibility, for its hidden talents, for the ways we could better see. Through dance and visual art and performance, she's always asking us to look at how thin the veil is between humans and animals, humans and objects, humans and saguaros, humans and places. She's always asking us to tend to the dialogue of love. Now she's written a novel about a post-apocalyptic world that is a place of possibility, a beginning rather than an ending. Just as in any fairy tale, the humans aren't all great. We are apocalypse bringers. But in this book, we are also depicted as light bringers, love bringers, something worth living for. The lightest object in the universe serves as a reminder that we are not, we are not ever alone. We have each other. We have all this. It is my pleasure to introduce Tucson's very own secret mayor and newest novelist, Kimmy Eisel. I called Frankie at five and I was like, do you think you can introduce me? No problem. That's because this town, right? Um, these friends, this community. So um, thank you so much. This is like, I feel like a rock star. This is a love story. So I'm going to start with the, how the lovers met. 
Beatrix liked the way Carson said her name. The first time he'd called, he'd said it as soon as she'd answered. Beatrix, hello. Her heart was pounding. I'm making soup, she said. Even though it's hot as hell here, I'm ready for autumn. So I'm making soup, and the kitchen is broiling, and so am I. But damn it, it's my night to cook, and my housemates and I are going to eat hot soup for dinner, even if it kills me. She heard him laugh through the phone. You sound determined, Beatrix, he had said. He could not see her nodding, but she felt seen and heard. She'd noticed how he said her name the day they met, too. It had been a fluke. She had traveled to the East Coast for a climate change rally. As a favor to a friend whose brother had just started teaching high school, she agreed to speak to a global studies class. Not the usual sort of thing she did, but why not? She'd been a little nervous, knowing teenagers could tear you to pieces. But she'd found two dozen oranges at a corner market and lugged them into the classroom. Everyone always loved the orange lesson. The idea was to illustrate how flat maps often distort world geography. Orange peels as the gateway into uneven development and American imperialism. Carson had slipped into the classroom just as some of the students began lobbing oranges back and forth. She noticed him, tall, with dark hair, easy, confident. Hey, hey, people, Beatrix said. Don't be chucking your world around. That's half the problem right there. Hold it tight. Take care. She instructed the students to draw a map of the world on the orange. It doesn't have to be perfect, just the basic geography as you know it. I'm sure you know where South America is, but did you know, did you know that Africa is actually much larger than North America? Carson had taken a seat in the back of the room. Hey, she called out, tossing him an orange. No spectators. He smiled, held up the orange, then pulled a pen from his breast pocket. Once their maps were drawn, she had everyone peel their oranges in one piece, if they could, then press the peel to the table. See how the continents split apart? To avoid that, you have to fill in the gaps, she explained. All flat maps distort the world either by size or shape or area. So the map you're used to seeing puts North America front and center and distorts the South. Why does this matter? She managed to lead them into a discussion about global economics and trade and offshore markets and manufacturing and who won and who didn't. Some of the students crowded around her, wanting to know more and how to get involved in fair trade causes. She handed out pamphlets and wrote web links on the whiteboard and told them to start a high school action group. You all have so much power. Use it. As she left the classroom, Beatrix raised a fist, and the students echoed the gesture. She was hurrying down the hallway, looking for an exit, when Carson came toward her. Oh, hi. How do I get out of here? All these barricades, she said. He had laughed, a pleasing laugh. Down the hall and through the double doors, he said, gesturing to the left. Great lesson, by the way. The compliment flustered her. He introduced himself as the principal, and she'd apologized for having complained about the hallways. He made a joke about trapping students inside, and they both had laughed. And he kept asking questions of her, and she had to go catch a train. And somehow, he asked her for her card, and she gave it to him. Beatrix with an X, he said, reading her name out loud from the other side of the country. (laughs) 
Beatrix is the um, she's the feisty activist, um, and the the book is really born out of um, this time, which is still with us. Um, this this for me personally, it was a time uh, in two thousand five, a long journey. Uh, we were at war with Iraq. I sat down on uh, New Year's Day two thousand five. And I had been writing essays about American exceptionalism and kind of trying to reconcile the privilege of growing up in a superpower and all that affords you um, with the realities of what the United States government uh, had been doing for centuries, or, you know, not centuries, but for decades. Um, so I decided to hand over that the angst I was feeling and the struggle that I was trying to write in nonfiction to fictional characters. And, and one of those characters was Beatrix. And she, in many ways, came out of um, the era of Voices, Inc., which was a, an era of working at an after-school documentary arts program with Josh Schachter, who's here. Um, and watching these teenagers come into the room, and you know, when you're 17 and 19 and 25, like you're just so, you have so much conviction. And I remember just, you know, I was like, I, I was I was also younger back then, but I, I admired that conviction. And, you know, as we grow older, we tend to see the gray more. And, um, but I admire activists and I admired those youth activists and I continue to admire activists for, the, for what they stand up for. And so Beatrix really comes out of that. Uh, not backing down. But, you know, what happens when, like, the revolution that you're fighting for and the system that you're chipping away at, like, finally falls? Like, you know, do we, what, what then? So the book, you know, is, is also trying to answer that question and um, the spirit of idealism, but then kind of the reality that hits. Um, did, I, did I create this? Did, did, my, did my revolution bring me down to... So that's that's her conflict, and she um, she is a global activist, and so she learns uh, she has to stay put in her one neighborhood. And so, um, thanks to many people in this room of observing and participating in neighborhood uh, community pizza dinners and tree plantings and water harvestings and food foragings and all the ways that we as Tucsonans know how to care for and enhance our environment. That all got, got in there. Not all, but some of it. So Beatrix is like a verb. You are listening to excerpts from a book launch party for Tucson and Kimmy Eisel's debut novel, The Lightest Object in the Universe, from Algonquin Press, on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. And then... Um, <laughs> The other protagonist is, is the observer, Carson, and he's, uh, he's a high school principal. He's trained as a historian. Um, I think maybe he wanted to be a journalist um, in some way, but he, he, he goes into to school life, and he um, rises up quickly in the ladder of public school, as men often do, and become principals very quickly. Um, and, and so he's living kind of with that regret. He loves teaching. He's living in an East Coast city, and when the shit hits the fan and everything goes down, he realizes pretty soon, as a as a knower of history, that you know he needs to uh, he needs to leave the city. Plus, you know he's got love in his heart, and he um, he wants to try to find Beatrix. So this is about halfway through the book. Early on in the book, he starts walking along the railroad, which is reportedly the safest 
manner of travel. So he's now been walking for, for, for many, 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 many weeks. When he was walking, Carson often forgot that there was ever anything else but walking, as if he had been walking his entire life and would continue to walk forever, and that all there was to life was walking. The placing of one foot in front of the other, the steady glide of the world on either side. Was he really making his way to Beatrix? Had he completely lost his mind? He wasn't even halfway to her yet. Maybe none of the way. Maybe Beatrix didn't even exist anymore. He was in flat country now, the sky a perfect half dome over him. The Iowa landscape was green and gold. The breadbasket, hallelujah. He heard barking and followed the sound to a shade-covered road where a dog stood alone as if waiting for him. He crouched and the dog trotted forward, female, mottled gray and black with brown eyes. She nudged her head into his palm and he felt her matted fur and ribs. Together they continued along the road to where the trees cleared and a town began. The afternoon sunlight reflected off parked cars and slanted off houses and buildings. Something about the light was odd. Its angle seemed too steep, the shadows too crisp, as if cast by a winter sun. It was the kind of town where folks should be sitting on the porch, waving to neighbors and drinking tea or cocktails, ice clinking in the glasses. Carson stayed alert for any movement. There had to be food here somewhere. The dog was no longer beside him, but when he sounded a long whistle, she came happily, two twigs sticking out from the side of her mouth. Play fetch, huh, he said, reaching for the twigs. But they weren't twigs. They were two skinny legs of a bird, a common robin. The dog positioned her kill between her paws and ate. On the porch of a modest house stood a woman in a once white terry cloth robe. Her hair was messy as if she'd just woken up. She waved him over. Can you help? She said, barely audibly. Please, my daughter. Carson approached the house. Maybe she would give him food. Have you come with medicine? The woman said. Please tell me you've come with medicine. Inside, the house smelled of mint and rotten meat. On the sofa was a small, pale girl. In the dim light, she resembled a fish, silvery and damp her mouth open and hollow. Each gurgle of breath shook her. Tea, Carson said, imagining a lemon and a sharp knife. He would slice up a lemon. Give her tea with lemon. There was the sound of coughing. The fish flopped onto its side and a thick yellow liquid spilled out from her mouth. Carson backed up to the door and let himself out. He knocked at the next house where two wooden ducks in the yard held up a welcome sign. When no one came, he risked it and went in, heading for the kitchen. A weak voice called out, David, is that you? Carson followed the sound to a bedroom where a thin, ashen woman lay beneath the covers, her head like a prune against the pillowcase. He heard the liquid in her lungs. Are you the doctor, she said. I'm not a doctor, Carson said, and the woman's body seemed to shrink. She brought her hand to her mouth, bony fingers, failing to cover the cough. Jesus, everyone in this town was sick. Carson stepped out of the room and hoped David, whoever he was, would soon return. 
In the kitchen, he opened a pantry door onto more food than he'd seen in six months. The woman made a noise, and Carson stood very still, his heart racing. Then he moved back to the doorway to her room. Take whatever you want, the woman said softly. Stay alive. Carson knew she would not last long. He went into an adjacent room and looked around. He grabbed a small ceramic duck from the top of a dresser and returned to the woman, placing the duck on the nightstand next to her. I wish there was something more I could do, he said. He stuffed his backpack with all he could fit, canned beans, soup, pasta, Tabasco sauce, two mason jars full of fine cornmeal. He moved down the hall to, the, to a bathroom. Below the sink, he found toothpaste, soap, and gauze bandages, a windfall. In a closet in the hallway, he found a pair of men's boots. Before leaving, he called out, thank you, bless you. Outside, he whistled for the dog, but she did not come. A man shuffled by, his head damp with sweat. On his face was a look of resignation. Carson walked with his hand over his heart. Bless these poor, sick souls. So um, I guess I forgot to say at the beginning that uh, this like unprecedented systems collapse and financial crisis happens, and that's the premise of the book, but I think you knew that. So I just wanted to say a word about uh, Carson and uh, this, the observer in him, and, and that scene is, you know, is uh, a scene of sickness and flu. Um, and you know he, he witnesses that along his along the way, um, and I also think that it shows like some of his kindness and the kindness that he learns from others. And so uh, you know one thing about this post-apocalyptic story is that uh, it, it leans toward the hopeful, um, which which means that it's not free from violence and menace. Um, but that I that I that I'm really asking like what if something else? Um, we have so many of those kinds of fictional tales on the screen and in literature that kind of imagine the worst of us after everything goes down. And I, you know, I just I really feel like uh, something else is is possible. I mean, I, I had to go back many times and add more darkness and more violence. Um, because I just so wanted to lean towards that hope. But the other thing you know, that I did mention about Carson is that he's grieving. Um, he's, he's, he's a, I think I mentioned that. He, he's a widower. So Beatrix is, is a new love for him. And he uh, lost his, his, his wife uh, about two or three years ago before the book opens. And so I think that. Um, we all know that grief can make us do like really shitty things, um, but grief can also uh, transform us and open us and invite in, like usher in a certain kind of beauty and connection that like might not be possible without that grief, um, which sucks, but um, but it's true, and so. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not apologizing for the hope in the book, but I. But I am kind of thinking about where it comes from, and I do. I do think that it that it comes a lot from from the grief that 
that we all carry and what like what happens to our individual grief like when it suddenly becomes collective um and i think that you know those of us living in this community um in this border region are asking that also you are listening to excerpts from a book launch party for tucson and kimmy isel's debut novel the lightest object in the universe from algonquin press on 30 minutes 91.3 kxci tucson which brings me to Rosie, Rosie Santos. She's a teenaged teenager, and uh, she really gained significance through the course of, of the journey of writing the book. And there's an evangelical preacher in the book who's kind of wanting to solve everything with, with easy promises. And so uh, he lure, he's luring people to the center of the country. It's, it's not giving too much away, but Rosie and her grandmother end up on that journey to, to seek some of his promises. So I'm just gonna read a little bit of Rosie, and she's, she's, she's young, and uh, she's kind of the, the future hope. Rosie and her abuela and 15 others walked away from Halcyon Street and out of the neighborhood toward the highway. The early September sun cut low across the horizon, casting a golden glow and long shadows. Rosie had never walked on a highway before, and for the first half hour she delighted in seeing her sneakers on pavement that had once known only trucks and cars. Now, of course, it knew only bikes and pedestrians, and they'd already seen plenty of each. By late afternoon, though, Rosie was tired of walking. Her backpack was digging into her shoulders, and her feet were tired. How long were they going to have to walk? She looked at her abuela's face. Her eyes were alive, full of hope. Why was she so convinced? What if Jonathan Blue, he's the evangelical preacher, what if Jonathan Blue had lied about everything? Hills reached out like arms, sleeved in gold on either side of the highway. Puffs of white clouds hovered above. It was like staring into a photograph. That first night, they slept in a barn on beds made of hay. Rosie listened to someone snoring. It was cold, and she pressed herself closer to her abuela. At dawn, dust floated up from the rustling and waking of bodies. Abuela tottered to the barn door. Rosie watching from the lumpy hay. Against the dawn, Abuela's silhouette looked misshapen, like she was not a person but an animal, awkwardly standing upright. A man began to sing in Spanish. Good morning, everyone. I'm heading for the center. The tune was one Rosie recognized a melodic rhyming song, but sometimes she thought all Mexican songs sounded alike, the old-timey ones at least. The singing man folded up his blanket. He looked like someone's grandfather, but sturdy and solid, with graying hair underneath his cowboy hat. He sang. He held the last note for a long time, and when he finished, everyone clapped. The man lifted his hat and nodded. Abuela handed Rosie a bottle of tincture. 
Three drops under your tongue, please. Rosie knew the drill. She opened the bottle and wrinkled her nose at the smell. No fussing. This is your breakfast. This is a stupid breakfast, Rosie thought, plugging her nose and dropping the liquid into her mouth. After two days of walking, Abuela finally started to speak Spanish. My God, it's too much. It's demasiado. Her feet were swollen, puffing over the edge of her shoes. Descanso. I must rest. Rosie tapped the shoulder of the singing man. His name was Jesus. Over the next 10 days, their group went from 7 to 12 to 14 and back to 11. The pilgrims came on foot and on mules and horses with one wobbly cart, which they loaded up with their meager possessions and took turns pushing. They slept in churches, in backyards, in empty stores, and in camps known as jungles. Each night, one or two people stayed awake, keeping watch. They were hopeful and righteous. They quoted Mr. Blue, you are hungry, we will feed you. You are thirsty, we will quench your thirst. We will restore your connection. We will connect to new technologies, spiritual technologies. We will unite. We will rise, one by one, purified, cleansed, whole. Each day, Rosie and Jesus added to their corrido, recording the landmarks, amused by their own rhymes. Once we're there, everything will change, said a fellow traveler, Louise. There will be fresh food from the gardens, fruits and vegetables, plenty of fresh water, blue skies. She turned her head upward. Rosie looked at the sky, too, and wished for some kind of interruption, a bird, a rainbow, a bug. But there was only thick gray. Rosie pulled the lip balm from her pocket and put some on, momentarily cheered by its scent and color. She considered the possibility that Louise was right, that Jonathan Blue had found the promised land, and that once they were there, they would eat and eat and feel so good. She looked back up at the sky. A raindrop landed in her eye. We'll have to leave it there, and we'll go out with a corrido composed by book characters Jesus and Rosie. You've been listening to excerpts from a launch party for Tucson and Kimmy Eisel's debut novel, The Lightest Object in the Universe, from Algonquin Press. The event was a celebration with a reading by the author and music by Conjunto Nepal at Exo Roast. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the program page at kxci.org. There you can find links to Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and 30 Minutes social media. Desenchufo nuestras vidas y perdidos Y por donde caminamos vemos muchas, muchas cosas, las montañas muy nevadas y unas vistas muy hermosas. Dennis McDonald's y Walmart, ya todos están cerrados. No hay ni más ni papas fritas, adelante ya nos vamos. <risa> 
Automóviles parados por todas las calles hay.